0: You're listening to the Stand With Us podcast, featuring some of the best content previously broadcast on Stand With Us TV. Thank you for standing with us to fight anti-Semitism and support Israel around the world. We have an incredible show for you today. A former neo-Nazi and KKK leader, T.M. Garrett, left hate groups and extremism behind in 2002. Today, he is a motivational speaker who advocates against hatred and anti-Semitism. In 2016, he founded Change, a nonprofit organization engaging in community outreach programs food drives, seminars, anti-racism, and anti-violence campaigns. In 2018, he founded the annual Memphis Peace Conference. When not fighting against anti-Semitism and racism, the German-American author is also a well-known producer, filmmaker, marketing expert, radio personality, and human rights activist. He also works closely with the Simon Wiesenthal Center and has lectured at universities across the United States. Welcome, T.M. Garrett. We are so delighted and honored to have you with us today. And I know we're going to all learn so much from you and your experience and your incredible, very unusual journey from hate to being a person to help uh, those people who are feeling so much hatred, and and God knows, these days there there is so much going on, so much divisiveness. So this is a good time to hear from someone uh, like you, TM. So welcome to the show, and let's just get right right into it. Um, tell us, tell us about what your background looked like, and when you were a child, and hopefully as we speak will be able to see some photos of you as a child. Uh, tell us, go back to the beginning. How did this all evolve that you became a member first of a neo-Nazi group and then later on a KKK group in a very serious, serious way? So let's go back to your childhood and tell us about what that was like.
1: Well, to understand the full story, we have to go back to the year 1975. seventy-five. That, that's when I was born and raised in Germany in a very small, small town, 500 citizens, very conservative, very Protestant. My family was actually Catholic, so they didn't fit in because of that. There were newbies in town, didn't fit in because of that. They had a different dialect. My father was uh, from an area that is now uh, Czech Republic. My mom was from Cologne. The dialect didn't fit in. They were both alcoholics. And the same year I was born, they divorced. So all these things that didn't make it a good place uh, to live for the family with all all these problems. And it also reflected in my childhood when I was growing up as a toddler. um, Thought there's something wrong with me because sometimes kids wouldn't play with me. I didn't know that their parents told them not to because of my family's reputation. I thought it's me. Something is wrong with TM. my mom, with her drinking problem, she really tried hard. I always had good clothes, over-the-top school clothes. I never starved. I always had good school supplies. And I think that was part of the problem. Her main mission was to get me through school. I was not a wanted kid. I happened during the divorce. All my siblings are significantly older. They're 8, 11, and 13 years older. So by, by the time I was in first grade, Two of my siblings had moved out. My, my oldest sister got married. My brother went to uh, college. And my oldest sister, she had a job and, and worked shifts. So I barely saw her. And my mom worked. And when she got home, she locked herself up in a room at night and um, drank. So I never saw her laying around being drunk. So that was kind of, I knew it, but I didn't see it. Uh, but the reputation was there. So there was no influence. There was no male influence either, because she never dated again. There was no no father figure, and and I was a weird kid because all these interests that were missing. Like other kids had, like interests like sports, um, somewhere into church, somewhere this and that. I had nothing. It was a little music. My sister influenced me with music, mostly English language music. I didn't understand English at the time, so that was a hollow message. I wanted to belong so bad. I wanted to be somebody. And I was the perfect victim for bullies. And this is what happened. I was bullied a lot. lot. And it felt like I'm the kid that you can push around, the kid in the corner. And it happened, actually, during puberty when we started learning about World War II in school. And I don't know if that's a bad time to present the topic to kids, especially boys, when they get in puberty and look for topics to add act up with that they can use to provoke i think they should learn it prior to that but anyway this is when it was taught holocaust hitler the third reich what the germans have done at the time and of course that is that is hard to to look at that because there's somebody being born in germany and then thinking about a grandmother who's still alive and a lot of others kids grandparents are still alive you would have to think about where might Grandparents involved in something like that? The grandparents I love? That is something you don't want to ask yourself as a child. That made it extremely hard. So you push this away. You wouldn't talk about it. Um, You wouldn't talk about Hitler either. Um, I always say it's a little bit like in a Baptist church. You you can't talk about the devil because it's too serious. You can't make fun of the devil either. That case too. You could not even make fun of Hitler at the time. It's too serious. But that's what we did on the schoolyard. It started mostly the kids that were a little bit older cracking jokes about the Nazis. They made fun of Hitler as well, but also made horrible anti-Semitic jokes about Jews being murdered, uh, racist jokes, xenophobic jokes, homophobic jokes, anything to provoke, anything to grab attention as a 13-year-old. And it worked, and I grabbed those jokes up too.
0: So. You were bullied as a child, and uh, and then you were around early adolescent when you learned about the Holocaust and Hitler, and you mm-hmm. took that into yourself, and why did you grab onto it, and I guess, how did you become known as a Nazi on the schoolyard? How did that part of it happen?
1: Well, it was a lot of the kids on the schoolyard were telling each other these jokes. But for most of them, it was just a phase. They went through to see maybe how far they can go, testing the authorities. And most of them went back to normal at some point. I didn't. I grabbed those jokes and I ran longer with them. Maybe because I didn't have a normal to go back to. I didn't have the Boy Scouts to go back to or tennis or soccer or whatever they did or... Whatever it was, my normal was the bullied the bullied kid in the corner that you can push around. and for nothing in the world, I would have gone back to that. So I ran with those jokes longer. It gave me the attention. it was a bad boy attitude and it was uh, the bad boy label I got first, but the longer I ran with it also was labeled as the Nazi kid because I even wrote them down, I made a comic, uh, made it very visual and graphic, and I felt like I- I was put in a box. They closed the lid, wrote on it, Nazi kid, and it was hard to escape out of the box. So at some point, I just started to to own it. I just fit in. Oh, if you tell my... a kid often enough, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, well, then you then you start fit in, and that's how it started. But it was just a provoke. There was no ideology. And I, I recall one thing. Uh, I had a talk with a principal, and he asked me, why are you a Nazi? And I didn't understand the question. I said, I'm making fun of Hitler as well. And I thought the Nazis were, were uh, hung in 1946 in Nuremberg. I didn't know that there were neo-Nazis. That was a concept I didn't know about. I only knew these jokes, and I knew they work for the attention, and I was the bad boy. And that was all that mattered.
0: So it made you feel in some ways different, special, important on the yard, Um, Did the kids stop bullying you when you took on this label and this identity?
1: Absolutely. It gave me the identity I was craving for, the purpose. And I became the bully eventually because nobody wanted to pick a fight with a Nazi. So it worked perfectly for me to get out of this corner. Um, The big problem was um, I was just left in this box left alone in there and that's where i actually sat until another kid on the schoolyard gave me a cassette tape with hate music and they sang about how i felt that i was blamed for things i sometimes didn't do that i'm actually not that bad i didn't feel like a nazi but they called me a nazi and sometimes in recruitment especially in germany with that kind of music that's how they recruit you they call you a nazi but you're only a proud german you only want to be there for your fatherland and you're on that mission but they call you a nazi and they they blame you for for everything you haven't done and you get this label and that resonated with me i was like they're singing about me they don't know me but they're singing about me i need to Find these people. And I was like 14, 15 at the time. So I was actively seeking out for skinheads, neo-Nazi skinheads, until I found them at the age of 15 at a a, um, country fair. And um, that's where I walked up to them, introduced myself, and started hanging around with them.
0: So did any of your family members realize what you were doing and uh, the whole story of your being bullied? Did anybody know? Did anybody reach out to you from your family?
1: Sometimes they realize or the teachers would tell them that I'm bullied, but I would never tell them because I felt already already small enough and I didn't want to feel as small in front of my parents That, oh, my God, I'm the poor kid that gets bullied. I didn't want the pity from my family, maybe. Um, But also the advice was mostly, oh, just ignore them. It will go away. The problem is that that mostly doesn't work. Um, It makes you still the weak kid that that you can pick on. And this is exactly what happened. And my family also thought that whole thing was a phase. They thought it will just go away.
0: Did you do anything with this group as a neo-Nazi? Did you get into mischief? Did you just talk about it? Or was there actual doing something?
1: Well, I was 15 years old when I joined the group. And we were hanging around mostly on the weekends. We got hammered, listened to music. Then we started going to concerts. And I saw violence at some point. I participated in violence. It was mostly like street fights against uh, other street gangs, or we went to some clubs and some fight broke broke out. And uh, if we couldn't find anybody, members of these groups just start attacking them themselves, and the violence happens there. So you actually were never safe. Um, but but it gave you still adrenaline and everything, and you got drunk and you wanted that. First, I didn't want to. I was a very, very shy kid, so I wasn't really chasing girls. I wasn't really looking for the violence. Sometimes I was chickening out, so that didn't work at the beginning. But the more I listened to the music, um, it slowed those guards, and, and I became numb listening to it. And at some point, I just accepted it as what it is and participated. But it was all so you- about just the violence. it was It was not about ideology yet. We used like swastikas. we used those lyrics, really hateful lyrics. but most of the of those people in in that skinhead group um, um, I don't think they really really believed in that it was more like a subculture because that's where the original skinheads that are not racist come from. It is a subculture like the punks and that whole environment. And that's the personal, the, like the political ideology that you had, that was more your personal business. I remember at the beginning, we went to some concerts and you had even some left leaning skinheads there. And I remember the leader of our skinhead gang uh, punched a punk uh, through a glass door and it looked like in a movie. And you could see that violence was omnipresent, actually. That changed from being those skinheads. When, when I joined the NPD, the National Democratic Party of Germany, and don't let the democratic and the name fool you, extremists are always good in hiding the extremism in fancy names. So they are an, a right wing extremist party with ties to neo Nazis. And that's when the ideology came in. All these words, all what we sang, the slogans we we're shouting when we we're drunk, that we used to provoke to get the detention. That is where it got really deep and where we're taught, oh, it's about your grandfather who was in World War II. They call him a criminal, but he was a hero. He was defending his country. They didn't do anything bad. I know they te- teach you the Holocaust and everything, but that's a lie too. It never happened. That's what they tell you. And they tell you that the communists, they're trying to swap out the – the um. German citizens and uh, uh, try to to have immigrants flood the country, and especially in that case, it was Turkish Muslims that were the main target. But deep, deep down, there was another enemy that we were not target at that time. That came a little bit later. So, but this were the main enemies. That's when really the ideology kicked in, and it changed from being a skinhead living that subculture and using all this to provoke to become a nationalist. So that took a couple of years. It is a slowly radicalization.
0: So you you had credibility, you had a sense of belonging, uh, maybe a sense of purpose, and uh, you were no longer alone. Tell us how you went from being part of the neo-Nazi movement there to being a member of the KKK.
1: Well, it was in 1998, about 10 years after I cracked my first Holocaust joke. And and I was asked by a group of clans men, clans clans people, member of a German KKK group that is active there, if I want to join them. Uh, First, I was hesitant. I didn't know much about it. And I just knew what what I saw in movies. And I didn't want to participate in violence. But then I Googled it. And it felt like, oh, wow, they must have some influence. In the USA in the 1920s, there were millions of members and governors were members. In the 60s, police officers were members. And I thought, wow, this is how we can actually infiltrate society and get get what we want that way. So I joined that group. But that caused also a problem with the neo-Nazi party because they didn't look like anything that um, was Christian because they said, Christianity is Judaism for non-Jews, and um, they said you cannot be Christian and anti-Semitic at the same time.
0: But you can, <laughs> you can, oh, yes. and we've seen it. We've seen it throughout history. Uh, if you're going to hate, uh, you can be within any group. Really, there's no group that's um, free from hate potentially. Uh, we have to work on ourselves, don't we? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And this is what happened: if somebody tells, plants that fear often enough, and tells you often enough that you have to be afraid of a certain group of people, they might be even part in, uh, of the population in your own country. They tell you you have to be afraid of those people, and it could be an, an ethical group, ethnic group. It could be a political group. If it Somebody tells you often enough, you have to be afraid of those people. Then you stop seeing those people as human beings. And that is exactly what happened in Germany in the Third Reich. People ask always, how could Germans do that? How could a vast majority of Germans support the Holocaust or look away when it happened? Were they all bad? Is something wrong with their DNA? No. The thing is, in this case, the Jews were dehumanized over and over and over. It was, the regular German heard it over and over from teachers and on the radio everywhere until you don't see that certain part of the population as human beings anymore. And once you don't do that anymore, it's easier to hurt a human being.
0: You know, we worry about that today, uh, TM. We we worry that uh, students that are, uh, that that love Israel uh, or Israelis on campuses uh, that they are being marginalized like that and dehumanized like that. So we worry that all the time today. And I'll in a few minutes I'll ask you what your advice would be for them. Mm-hmm. But before we do, I just want to welcome everybody who is listening and watching from all over the world. Tell us where you're from. Uh, put your country into the uh, the comments section, let us know. And also we will answer as many of your questions as we can at the end of the uh, show. Uh, and so please uh, give us your questions as well. So uh, TM, uh, I saw some footage and hopefully we could show it. Uh, of you becoming a knight, I think is that what you call it? you were you became a knight of the kkk
1: well that footage we're going to see was recorded in november 2000 i was already a knight this is when you become a member you're knighted and um already for two years but at that time we founded our own kkk group overseas i was um in trouble With the law, because of lyrics I've written, I didn't want to go to prison. And I decided to leave the neo-Nazis and the skinheads a little bit behind and create a parallel movement. And with the advice of a KKK group from Mississippi, we started our own new group in the 2000s. So I traveled to the U.S., in that case to Mississippi, where I was appointed as the Grand Dragon. The Grand Dragon is the state leader in, in the USA. And in other countries, it's the leader of a country. So I was appointed the leader for Germany in this case.
0: That's a big thing. Um, So uh, I won't say it's an honor, but uh, it's certainly interesting. So let's take a look at that footage right now.
1: Proclamation of the Imperial Wizard of the South, Mississippi Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, I, the Grand Dragon, the Mississippi White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, Knight B, sir, Achmed Schmidt, Grand Dragon, European White Knight, Realm of Germany's Ku Klux Klan. Eyes be recognized. It is it is hard to look at that now. And You said an honor. It felt like an honor because we always thought we're doing the noble thing. We thought, oh, it's not about hate. It's about loving our own people. But in reality, we are busy hating. We were getting up with this fear. We're at war with the world, with everybody. We're afraid that the police is coming, kicking in our doors, that the Jews are taking over the world, that the immigrants are flooding the country, destroying everything. We have to fight. Everybody, we, we got up with it. We're breathing, living it all day long. We took this feeling to bed, into our beds, into your sleep. It was horrible. It's it's exhausting.
0: And once again, as the leader of the KKK in Germany, did you do anything? Did you uh, create any mischief or was it a lot of music and talk and lyrics and just the club of the, the haters?
1: Now, well, we had a clear goal. The goal was to infiltrate society, to achieve our goal of separation of the races, of having no Jewish influence, to save Christianity, to have no Muslim influence either. And to do that, it was clear we need people of influence or powerful people in our ranks. And so we started looking for these people. And indeed, we recruited police officers in our ranks, we recruited business people into our ranks we try to stay clear from the typical neo-nazi or the skinhead so the low life people and getting regular people regular people from society that reflect society and so it, it didn't matter what political party was in power if we can infiltrate it and this was the goal and we try to make it as legal as possible because again i didn't want to go to prison for that And I wouldn't be good in prison. I wouldn't be good for the cause I was fighting for. I wouldn't be good for my kids that I had, for the family. And I'm also afraid of prison. I don't want to be there. So we tried to make it as legal as possible. No violence, no illegal symbols. But it was a bad thing.
0: Did You you didn't mention the hatred against uh, black people. Was there that element as well? You mentioned Muslim people. Uh, this purity issue, D- did you also discuss the black people in Germany?
1: Absolutely. Black people were one of the targets as well. And historically, there were not many black people in Germany. Um, with the Muslims, it was different. In the 50s and 60s, when the German economy was really, really blooming and and, and was really strong, uh, the country needed workers. So they got a lot of immigrants from Greece, from Turkey, from Italy, from Spain, which is the more the, the Spanish and the, the, the Italian immigrants were more looked at more welcoming, while the Turks, well, the language was completely different. the The religion was different. They're Muslims. They were seen as really the strangers, and that was creating fear because it was a totally unknown. And a lot of those immigrants stayed in Germany. Black people started coming into the country in the in the early 90s after the Berlin Wall fell. You had a lot of refugees coming, and you had right-wing extremist um, propaganda that made parts of the population be afraid of those people. They're coming here from these countries. They're taking over. They're impure. We have to save our people. Don't mix up with them. So we used that.
0: So at a certain point, you realized something, Uh, you you wanted to get out of the hate group, and you were the leader. How did you end up leaving and and running away from all of this? It was inbred already for years for you.
1: I was living it. I was breathing it. But you said the right word, (laughs) running away from it. And after two years grooming this new group, and I felt like at the top, I felt like we got this. We will take over. We will infiltrate the society, and we got this. Uh, Of course, the German authorities had us on the radar, of course, and they were threatening me with prison and said, if one of my members is doing a crime or committing a hate crime or hurting somebody, well, I would be responsible for that. And they were right. I mean, we were not the hippies. We were not preaching peace and love. We were attracting those people, and I knew it. Uh, I didn't want to believe it, but... uh, Deep inside, I knew it. All I could do is really remove myself from the situation and not to go to prison and to be safe. So I retired. So I was still a racist. I was still an Islamophobe. I was still an antisemite. Uh, But I retired and handed the group over to somebody else. I was not ready to disband the group because, you know, I was radicalized over a certain amount of years. And it's like if you walk 10 miles into a forest, guess what? It's 10 miles to walk out of the forest. And I was still in the middle of the forest. So I handed over the group and was hanging around with those people still a little bit because I had another friends. That was all I had. I even made all my money in this. That's a whole ecosystem. So what happened is I still was, I still was afraid that the authorities could think I'm still behind the group, even though I wasn't. So I decided, okay, let's get away, take the family. We moved to another town 100 miles away. We literally we ran away, and the only apartment we could find was owned by a Turkish Muslim immigrant. It it felt like like really. I picked up the phone, and the guy picked up the phone, and I heard the accent. I was like, really? But I lied to myself. I was like, it's just temporary. I will find something else. So I moved in, and he lived in the apartment below us. The thing is, I kept running into the guy. Of course, we shared the same hallway, and. I hated Muslims at that point. It was one year after 9-11. I thought he's like Osama bin Laden. He will kill me in my bed at some point. But the constant interaction, day for day, my attempts to unmask him and, and unmask him and expose him as the Muslim terrorist that I thought he was, I tried for six months, and it didn't work. And why? Because he didn't wear a mask. He was just a regular person. I was the guy with the mask on. He unmasked me. And I realized uh, there was a couple events where it really happened when I realized that one was a family dinner, for example, where I sat at this dinner table. And I realized these are just people. They eat even the same stuff we eat. He worries about his kids the same I do. He worries about everything the same. He likes movies. He likes music. We are the same people. He just looks a little bit different and talks different and prays different. And I realized, wow, I was the bad guy at the table, not him. And that made my hate crumble. It was that compassion he showed me at a time when I thought I didn't deserve it. The compassion I didn't receive as a child, the compassion that I thought I would receive in the neo-Nazi movement, and where do I get it from? From one of my enemies who didn't care about what I thought who saw nothing but the human being in me. And he humanized me. There was no way I could see nothing else but a human being in him. And that my hate crumbled. And I was like, okay, I have to find out. I have to find out, are all Muslims like him? Or are they all terrorists? What is happening here? This is wrong. This is so wrong. I couldn't deal with it. And then I started, okay, I, I'm done with this. It's, it's stupid. It's it's there's something wrong with that whole ideology, and I started exploring that rich Muslim community Germany has, and I realized, wow, they're all just people. They eat normal stuff. They eat chicken and fries like me. That's 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 insane. That's so normal, you know. But these are the things that just realized when I realized how big the commonalities are.
0: So that was the breakthrough. You realized that your neighbor was as normal as you and accepting of you. So Mm -hmm. suddenly somebody liked you and you couldn't, uh, you couldn't keep hating. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how did that apply? How did you generalize all that? Was that bubble that was broken? Did that like break everything up for you in terms of all the people you hated or did that shine a light on, on all of it for you?
1: Technically, yes. I, I realized, okay, this is how the Nazis got me in the first place. And I realized, okay, they that all was a lie. All this hate is a lie. So I started talking to normal people in society and realized what this world is about, actually. Because I got into that movement when I was like 13. I didn't know the outside world. And I just realized that. Um, I didn't talk to many black people because there were not many around. I didn't talk to many Jewish people because, unfortunately, historically, uh, seen there's not many Jewish people in Germany, at least not at the point. Fortunately, the Jewish community is growing again in Germany, but at the point wasn't. Um, but I realized, okay, I realized, okay, yes, the Holocaust happened. Uh, yes, no. Um, like people are not bad; they're not uh, impure. We're not superior to them. All this stuff. I knew this is this is part of the propaganda that was pushed on me and that I used to push on others. So I I got that concept. What happened is for about ten years I tried to live a normal life, and I was embarrassed about it, and I was a little afraid of society that they could reject me if they knew about my past. So I just swept everything under the carpet and didn't talk about it. I just pretended. It never happened. If I would talk about it, I just said, yeah, I used to be a right-wing extremist, little skinheads, but I didn't talk about to what extent that I was up there on the top. I didn't want to talk about that. Because, look, if you compare America loves redemption, Germany does too to a certain extent, but not when it comes to Nazis. And I knew that. And I was afraid of that rejection.
0: So when did you realize that people would welcome your redemption and would welcome your change? When did you realize that and then embrace yourself uh, as a former hater, but as, as a person who could teach others so much?
1: Much later. It started actually in a very bad way. So in 2012, I was outed in the German media. Very brutally, in a very negative way, that I hadn't reflected on my past yet i just did, I just wanted to act. It, it never happened. Um, I downplayed it a little bit, my role and was oh, it was not that bad. I was not that bad and just just wanted them to stop putting stuff in the newspapers about me. That was very hurtful for a couple of years, and I tried to escape that that's also about when I moved to to the u s that was always a childhood dream. And I just made it, made the dream come true at the time. And then also here in the U.S., a newspaper uh, published a big article about me. Wanted to make it look bad, couldn't because I was out for twelve years already at the point. So there wasn't too much negative to write about my my life today. But uh, I still hadn't reflected. I still haven't embraced that former life um, as part of myself. Or what I can do good with it. So I was in self-defense. And it started actually talking to a group called Exit Germany, which helps neo-Nazis leave the neo-Nazi movement. I was like, look, I'm out for 12 years. I don't need your help. But I, what I didn't realize was that it was about reflecting and having professional help in the this reflecting process, you know, to realize how did I get in? What happened to me when I was a child? What happened to me when I got out? I didn't understand all this. I was as clueless as everybody who's listening right now about my own past until I started to reflect and had professional help. And this is also when when um, the outside actually became interested in me as a person, as the person TM today. And people started reaching out who were in the movement, said, hey, if you can get out, how did you do that? How can we get out? So I started working with those people, and I started to learn to talk about my past because I learned I can use it for something good. At the beginning, I didn't know how yet, but I learned that a couple of years later, which we can talk about it in just a couple of minutes.
0: So uh, we know that you've been speaking uh, to universities and synagogues and uh, to, to all kinds of uh, people who are, are curious about your background and how you overcame the hate and, and ran away from it. Um, we have some questions for you from people who, are, who have joined us. So the first question comes from Ingrid in San Diego. Uh, she says, what is your message to college students who feel like outsiders or feel marginalized because of the hate that they're experiencing, whether it's anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism on their campuses? What would you say to them?
1: Um this is very, very important because I witnessed that a lot when I went to universities and talking to students. And you look at that, for example, the BDS movement, and you have a lot of kids that think they're fighting a noble cause, like they feel like social justice warriors, and then actually taking on 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 a minority group and, and think it's not anti-Semitic. This is a very, very tough topic. But... What in this case to a Jewish student who who gets who, who's afraid? What's happening here? It's the same when, um, for example, I often get called to universities or synagogues when something happens, like a swastika being, being drawn in the synagogue, for example, and that always makes you be afraid. Like what's it's happening here because you've seen it the. Like in in New York, you have seen attack, the anti-Semitic attacks. Then you had seen Pittsburgh. Then you had seen Poway. It happens over and over again. And this year, you had people in in just the last couple months being yelled at, attacked, uh, um, objects thrown out out of cars just because somebody's looking Jewish. Um, And then all of a sudden you have something happening at your synagogue or something happening at your school, a swastika, or somebody is calling you out because you are a Zionist or you're pro-Israel. I I never understood for a long time how it feels to feel helpless. I had had one thing that happened in my life when I realized how that feels, and this is why I understand it so well and, and can empathize. And I thought about this a long time. How can a minority group, how can I help a minority group to not to feel helpless, to not to feel powerless when something like that happens? When I come there and maybe lecture somewhere, am I not preaching to the choir? Do I have to tell them don't become Nazis? Of course, I don't have to tell Jewish kids not to become Nazis. That's of course not. But no, I'm still not preaching to the choir because I realized that my message can help those those kids, um, and let me t- tell me a story. What happens? This kid who maybe drew the swastika, or is is handing out a BDS flyer, and calls you out because you're pro-Israel and spews anti-Semitic um, propaganda and rhetoric, and we all are tempted really quick to put these people in a box. Like maybe the kid who drew the swastika or even the kid with the BDS flyer. Put them in a box. Okay, that's an antisemite because he did something antisemitic. That reminds me of myself. I was cracking Holocaust jokes, but not for the sake of being an antisemite. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anything about the Nazis. I just wanted to provoke in this case. But nobody looked at it. So we put these people in a box, close the lid, and forget that there's a human being inside. because. That's a nasty antisemite in there, because he did something antisemitic, which is true. And we forget that. The danger we have here is that at some point, the real antisemites are opening this box and are pulling these kids out. And then we have lost them. And the great power we have is that we open this box and look inside and realize This kid who drew the swastika, this kid who just handed me the BDS flyer, who's saying something anti-Semitic, something anti-Israel, that is still a human being. And this is sometimes hard to, who am I to ask to show, to to ask a Jew, for example, to show compassion to somebody who looks like an anti-Semite? Who am I to ask a black person to show compassion to somebody who looks like a racist? But we have to see and find out That human being inside, how intentional was what that person said? How intentional was the swastika? How intentional is that BDS flyer? Where is that kid standing when they're handing it out? Are they radicalized already? Or did they just receive it the day before? And you think, I want to be a social justice warrior. And you hand me the flyer and they say, oh my God, that's so bad what's happening down there. I have something to fight for. And this is very often how this starts with those kids. They don't know anything about that. And if we pull those kids out of those boxes, then we have done a great deal because that kid might become the next synagogue shooter if we don't pull them out, if the real antisemites are pulling them out. And if you don't mind, I would like to tell a story about that that really, really puts that in the picture. It happened a couple of years ago in chicago and it was it was really interesting i went up there and actually had a uh, a lecture in front of a couple a jewish businessman and a rabbi and the rabbi introduced me and he told the story and when he was done i told him i don't need to talk i don't need to speak anymore you you just told the message that i wanted to deliver this message was a story that happened there a young Jewish woman attending uh, a college in Chicago and lived there on campus and had a room at the dorm and had a mezuzah at their door. And it was just when these attacks happened in New York. And um, at some point she realized that mezuzah was taken down and trampled, destroyed or whatever. And she was like, oh my God, it's happening here. The anti-Semitism has arrived here at campus. And she was afraid. She reported it, and it went to the police. And fortunately, they could look at the cameras. They found out who did it. So the police questioned the man, and then they also asked the young woman, what do you want to do? Want to press charges? And she said, no. And the police was like, what do you want to do? She was like, I want to sit down and talk to the man. And you see what happens here. The man was already in the box. He was already the Nazi, the anti-Semite, Because, yes, he did something antisemitic, yes. But what she did, she opened the box, took the human being out, sat down with the human being, and realized he didn't know anything about the Holocaust. He only took that mezuzah down to hurt her personally. That was all he knew. So he did something anti-Semitic, sort of unintentionally, not for the sake to be an anti Semite, if that makes sense. And she asked him, Do you want me, do you want to join me and come to the Holocaust Museum in Chicago? And he said, Yes. And they went. And they got out of the Holocaust Museum. And he was like, wow, I didn't know anything about all this. And he apologized and bought her a new mezuzah. Now imagine he would have stayed in this box. And the guys in the swastikas would have pulled him out. And he maybe would have become the next synagogue shooter. And this is the power we all have. So whatever happens on campus... Whatever swastika shows up, whatever happens, we don't, we or every community does not have to feel or must not feel powerless or helpless. We have a great power. And this is what we can do. And I've been asked what's the vaccine against hate? And it's humanization. Because the dehumanization is fueling the hate and creating violence or make people want to be violent against people, forgetting that they're human beings vaccines humanization look in the box
0: so you're you're uh, advocating reaching out you would have loved it if when you were a child that anybody would have reached out to you and to pull pull you out of the box but how do you differentiate between an individual in a box and a whole group that's anti-semitic how how would you? suggest that we view and that we deal with full groups that are anti-semitic
1: we have to realize uh, to for a group to survive they need new members so and sometimes it's more important to prevent than to counter countering is very important as well because when they come to town nobody wants the Nazis to come to town nobody wants the Ku Klux Klan to come to town but um, and I know what's the first urge when the Nazis come to town. You want to to make signs and tell them to go away. You know, KKK, go away. And I once lectured in Chattanooga, and one girl asked me, "Yeah, of course we want to go, want them to go away. I said, where do you want them to go? Back to Knoxville, where they came from?" And I thought, "Yeah, okay. So they go back to Knoxville, but then they're there. Do you want people to go away or opinions? We're still talking about human beings, so." Hate groups, when they come to town, they're always looking for violence. They're always looking for the counter rally. They're always looking for somebody to be there they can yell at and somebody to yell back at them. And that's what's happening. The counter protesters are always yelling back at the hate group. But i tell you something. Yelling at each other has never, ever in history changed anybody's mind. Never. Try that in a marriage and yell at each other just to get your point across. I guarantee it won't work. Why do you think it will work in such an environment? It will lead just to a divorce as well. This is what's happening in this country. Anyway, so this is really hard. But we have to walk across the cafeteria and talk to people who look different. And I'm not saying when the Nazis come to town to go there and to talk to them. In that case, plaster your town with posters. Make sure that they're not welcome. Just don't go there. Nazis hate nothing more than being ignored. And it happens to former leader of the National Socialist Movement. He's out of the movement, fortunately, as well. He told me the story just last year. They went once to Tupelo, Mississippi, and Tupelo was smart. Nobody went to the rally. They just let the Nazis march and ignored them. And the Nazis were like, this is the most boring rally ever. Why can't it be like in Philadelphia last year, and we could smack chairs over other people's heads? And they didn't even get the chance. So they, they were disappointed and left. So this is what we have to do there. We have to talk about the individuals when they're ready to talk and they're actually always ready to talk. And we also have to listen. And yes, it's hard. If we know or we think we know we are right and they are wrong. And again, go back to a relationship, a best friend or a marriage. If you want to bring your point across, and your sole mission is to sit down and convert the other side and tell them you're right and they are wrong, guess what? It doesn't work either. And in a political environment or if you have a member of a hate group or somebody who's being radicalized, a kid maybe, we always need to listen to their fears. We need to listen. What is going on with a human being? That's the compassion I'm talking about, showing empathy. Don't confuse this with sympathy. We don't have to show sympathy for their ideology, but it may be an understanding how they could get there because it's all based on fear that's planted by certain on by certain groups on social media, on TV or wherever. It doesn't matter if you're left or right. It happens on both sides, a dehumanization process. And then we have to see this fear might not be substantial, but it's real. It's like the monster under the bed for a child. As a parent, we know that monster is not real. But we know the fear is very real. And yes, to a Nazi, that fear is real too. That's where the hate comes from. And once that fear can be... If we are able to take this fear away from this person who's getting radicalized or has been radicalized, they realize they have been wrong. They realize, I don't have to be afraid of Jews. I don't have to be afraid of Muslims. I don't have to be afraid of black people. I don't have to be afraid of anybody. Those are human beings.
0: We have uh, seen a lot of success at Stand With Us in, uh, when we do reach out uh, on a case-by-case basis to uh, to people who you know do hateful things. We have seen change. Uh, just like with you, T.M. Garrett. And uh, I just want to thank you for being with us today. I'm sorry we couldn't take more questions from all of you out there. But as you can see, the the powerful story of a man like this really needs to be told over and over because, especially now, with all the uh, rising anti-Semitism and the rising hate and the division, uh, we really do need your help. Uh, to kind of uh, you know see our our clear way through all of this. So thank you very much for being with us, for for teaching us, and uh, and for sharing your your incredible journey. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.